Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hi, and welcome back to Brainbow. I'm Michelle Contreras, and today on the podcast, we're going to be reading The Real Anthony Fauci by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and I'm going to begin with chapter 12. We're going to see how long um, this takes to finish the book. I might finish it today if I don't, you know, start talking in between. But we'll see how it goes. I have not read this yet. Um, so I'll I'll be reading this for the first time. And I'm going to try to just, like, read it, stick to the script, and just re- read it verbatim. Now, on Sunday, which is in two days from now, which is January 23rd, 2022... There is going to be a huge protest. So far, there's 30,000 people that signed up for the anti-vaccine mandate in Washington, D.C. So that's exciting. And I want to finish this book up before then because um, hopefully, you know, people when they're... I don't know if these guys are going to have any place to stay because it seems as though... They are tightening up security over there. And Washington, D.C. is crazy. Like, when Trump was inaugurated, it was like nobody could get in or out. And they have, like, you know, um, security everywhere. And Washington, D.C. is probably one of the strictest cities that, you know, where they have their mask mandates and stuff. Um, So I don't know how that's going to go. I I would imagine that um, it will be hard, too, for them to find food and stuff, right? Because you have to be vaccinated to go into just regular, you know, restaurants and stuff like that. And um, so anyways, yeah, good luck with all of that. Um, I'm glad that they're doing it and God bless them. All right. Oh, you know, okay. So last, the last episode I left off and I, and I was just like kind of pontificating and I'm like, sorry for doing that sometimes, but like I was trying to figure out why is it that now there's people are, having this um type of like altruistic for the greater good attitude about vaccines when other countries that I would imagine would because they have more of a group collective consciousness and like I'm talking about like you know in Asia and um Japan and like um India a lot of places in India and and just even like um Places that haven't been so civilized, you know, like, um, I don't know, Bhutan, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, stuff like that, where these cases of infants that would um, present with, like, you know, adverse reactions, they would, they, they, they would call it right away and they would say, no, you know, we're not going to give this out to any more people. And... And I, and I would think that over there, they'd be like, well, who cares? You know, there's millions of billions of people and nobody cares about you. You're just one out of many. I would expect them to, like, be more apt to, like, just say, you know, this is for the greater good. But instead, we see it in European countries, which... You know, in, in the United States, which has um, been notorious for, like, just being cutthroat and survival of the fittest and, you know, individuals and hu- personal rights. Like, other countries, they don't they don't even expect 
individual rights. They're just like, yeah, we're all trying to like do something together and nobody's more important than the other. But here we have like a sense of entitlement and, um, you know, might makes right. And if you are a winner, then you get special treatment, blah, blah, blah. And so those people are the same ones that are standing up now and, and, and declaring this is for the greater good. We need to come together and, you know, just like take one for the team. If that means that you lose your child, you take one for the team. So far on RFK's website, it was something like the last time I looked, which was about three months ago, it was 20,000 deaths that were that occurred within two weeks after one of the vaccines for COVID. And so, um, I mean, that's a huge number. Compare that to Bhutan, there's five infant mortalities and India had like 19 total. For them, I'm talking about for the hepatitis, the, penta, the pent, pentavalin, is that how you pronounce it? So, um, yeah, it was for HIV and for hepatitis B. And um, these countries, which have been like, you know, five to 20 deaths, they would pull it. And our our country, we wouldn't even, we would say that it was genetic. We'd, that's what we would be told. It's genetic. And it's just one of those things. And now when, so, so it occurred to me just today, I'm like, oh, I understand why. Because I remember when my children were getting vaccinated and there's this feeling of like, kind of like an okay the reason why i'm saying it's a nazi feeling is i watched this movie about it's called uh, the secrets we keep and it's about this romanian lady she's a, a gypsy and they were killing you know, they were killing the gypsies the nazis were and um the, the nazis had this attitude of like we are the strongest race and we have a right to you know just evolve and to be um <clears throat> to be the, the, as strong as we can so that w we take over the world. And there was a sense of um, pride in that. And if somebody did die for the greater good, <clears throat> it was a noble and virtuous, you know, act. And the parents would, you know, be able to say, well, my child died. Or they would send their, if their kids had any kind of problem, they would send their kids off. And they would say they were a burden on society. So, you know, we're, we're calling the herd for the greater good. And, and, and there was like this superiority type of feeling of like, we're on the side of, um, of nature's survival of the fittest. And pity was, and all that stuff was just a bunch of malarkey, you know, that, was for like weak gypsies and people that were leeches on society like the Jews and stuff. And and they really painted out the gypsies and the Jews as being weak and um what is that word? <laughs> degenerate, okay? A bunch of degenerates. And now we have what I would say is the flip side where you have these liberals which would have been degenerates a long time ago. Now they're standing up and saying, it's like karma, kind of, you know, they're standing up and saying, we're doing this for the greater good. And, you know, if something happens, then we're willing to look the other way because, you know, I'm still here. And until it personally affects somebody, then they flip sides. But, you know, as long as they're, if they're not being affected, then they're like, well, you know, too bad for them. It's survival of the fittest, you know, even old people were in, you know, in the past, 
elderly people would be like, no, like we don't want our children to have to, you know, take one for us. We're the elders. Like we go first. And now it's the opposite. Now it's like, no, the children are supposed to lay down for the elders. And, um, so I was, I, I realized, I'm like, oh, I get it now. Because let's say like in Japan, if they acknowledge vaccine injuries and because they, they all are aware that they're doing this vaccine program for, um, because it's like, it benefits more people than it hurts. So if somebody does get hurt, they get compensated. They get, um, they get money to take care of their child's special needs. Here, you know, there, there's a, a large population of caretakers that are like myself that are unable to work and, um, and then we're considered burdens on society, right? And then plus not only that, but it's like, oh, you have a child who rides the special bus and so you're like not one of us and oh, well, you know, it's your genetics. And then they look at you like you have faulty genetics and they have superior and then it pumps them up, puffs them up even more. So when something happens to a child after they've been vaccinated, like I remember when my kids are being vaccinated, I thought, you know, I'm part of this world and society and like to be, it, there's a lot of pressure from the doctor. They look at you like if you don't, then you're endangering your child and you're risking your child's life just out of fear that you don't want them to have a reaction, which is unfounded. And to expose your child to that kind of risk makes you like a negligent parent. There's all of that. But then there's also like hope that nothing bad's going to happen because, you know, you're one of the strong ones. And then when it turns out that something happens to your kid and everybody is like, well, you can't blame it on the vaccines. There's nobody there for you. It's like, it's like there's something wrong with with you and your genetics. Okay. All right. So when your kid has something, people look at it like I'm willing for you to be injured because I have not been injured. And because you're vaccinated, you're less likely to pass something to me because you're less likely to contract it, theoretically, right? Because if people are vaccinated, they're supposed to be like, they're not supposed to catch whatever they're vaccinated for. And then other people feel safe around them. So they're willing to take that risk that if something bad happens, then it's not like if it was a true collective altruistic great for the greater good. If just a couple of people, a couple of babies died, like in Bhutan, for example, after five infants died, they're like, no, we, we're not going to use this anymore. Because, not because they're afraid, not because they want to be protected, but because they don't want to cause that kind of damage and injury and suffering onto others. And that's what true altruism and for the greater good is. You don't want to hurt all of these people. Especially if, you know, if, if it was something, God forbid, like, something like Ebola, right? Or the way COVID was when it first came out, or I don't know, like all these other diseases where it's like, you know, COVID, I had COVID, a lot of people had COVID, we get over it. It's not, it's, you know, whatever, it's a cold, okay? If it's something, and we, t and we talked about in the last episode, 
RFK was talking about the history of polio, I was under the impression that polio is like super, you know, it's, um, it, it was eradicated because of the vaccines. That's what I, that's what I thought. I didn't know that it was still around. They just changed the name of it. And then they said it's eradicated. Um, and so, and the thing with like different vaccines, like I, I was, you know, I still, I'm still afraid of rabies. Like I don't want to move to a state that has rabies in my state, Washington. We don't have like, there hasn't been a rabies case here in like 15 years. And it's just like some diseases and some viruses are specific to certain areas, you know, like malaria. We don't have malaria around here. So to get vaccinated for malaria wouldn't make any sense. Right. But, um, you know, they're pushing for all these vaccines, whether or not people have been exposed. And then they say, well, the reason why you don't see it is because we 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 have vaccines for it. And so if you don't participate in this, then you're going to be like the person who drops the ball. And nobody wants to be that person. So on, on the other side, when you have people that are like, they see a death and they see an injury and they're like, no, for I'm willing to be exposed so that I don't have to see babies dying. I don't have to have children become damaged, you know, neurological uh, like seizures and all this other stuff. They're willing to take the risk in their life that they may catch hepatitis or polio or covid because they don't want to go around mass vaccinating everybody and having even five deaths. Because there's also a sense in these other countries, but they, they have a, um, a, a faith in God. And it's something that our, our um, culture doesn't have because our spirituality has been replaced by religion. And it's very official. And it's like, God doesn't, you know, like... If, I mean, there are people that are like Baptist Christians and stuff, and they have their own relationship with Jesus. But I'm talking about like the official religion of Christianity, you know, states that God doesn't heal. He doesn't heal illnesses and he doesn't cause illnesses. This is caused, this is science. And science, you know, is something that can be regulated and controlled. So if you were to go... Yeah, I remember I told my doctor that in the, when, when my son had a um, reaction, no, my daughter had a reaction first. And I told her, I was like, I don't want to do all of these vaccines, especially not at once. I want to wait. And I kept telling her, I want to wait, want to wait. And she, you know, was telling me that it was, um, it was proven that vaccines don't cause injuries and there's no autism associated with it. Even though if it's in your family, even if, you know, like, cause I said, I think I, I, I may be predisposed cause I have the genetics because there's autism in my family. And she said, no vaccines don't cause it. And, and I'm like, well, okay. I got, I got into it with her about that. And, um, and I told her, I said that, you know, I'm willing to let God, just do what God wants to do. And if that's God's will, I'm going to do it. And she said, that's the difference between me and you. You have faith and I believe in science. I'm like, all right. Well, back then they didn't have, they didn't have any kind of political clout or legal right to, um, to, you know, write you up for being a negligent or, you know, parent if you didn't, if you weren't compliant with their recommendations Things are changing real fast. And so this is what this protest is about. So, yeah, what do you guys think about that? I mean, for the greater good, for the greater good about if it was for the greater good. And if if there was a vaccine injury, like in you know Japan and other countries, they 
they give you assistance when there is and it's like i'm sorry that that happened but you know it's one of those things um why is it that in these other countries all they need is like five to twenty deaths and then they pull it and then here it's like you can't even prove that it happened even if even if you die within like two weeks of having the vaccine they say no you had an underlying heart condition that's what it was it's like the person you know this kid was like I'm talking, there is this real case. I, I don't know his name, but there's many, many. I hear about it all the time. And um, people posting stuff, they show death certificates. They show calls to um, the CDC and they get the runaround. And there's people that have been, that have injuries. And these are adults that are able to speak for themselves calling. Kids aren't able to do this. Parents, I mean, pe- adults are calling saying, you know, I wasn't able to walk. After, you know, couple, like a couple of weeks after I had it. And they say, well, that has nothing to do with it. It's like correlation doesn't equal causation, blah, blah, blah. And it's not even reported. Because they have, what they do is it's bureaucratic. And it's like you call in, you tell them that you had an injury. They have to investigate it. After they investigate it, then it gets reported. But it doesn't get reported right away. So, yeah, I was, I'm watching this lady on Twitter and she posted her call with these people. And she's like, I, you know, she, it was in um, March that she initially told them about her reaction. And she still hasn't heard anything. And this, so it's like almost, it's like 10 months. 10 months she hasn't heard anything. They haven't even begun investigating it. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, we're at that stage of, how do you how do you try to get somebody to have compassion for children children who you know are taking on this risk if they don't even believe that it's happening if they don't even believe that it, it's it's possible to get injured from a vaccine they think that you know you're just crazy paranoid conspiracy theorists at that point right all right so I, I think I went on long enough I am going to try to stick to the script and just read the book chapter 12 germ games war games genesis of the biosecurity state quote from benjamin franklin those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety klaus schwab this is kind of creepy i I don't even want to get into this guy because there's been some so many stuff so much stuff i've been you know seeing about him on twitter about the great reset um, he wrote a book about it. Okay, so July 2020, he says, Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Nothing will ever return to the broken sense of normalcy that pervaded prior to the crisis because the coronavirus pandemic marks a fundamental inflection point in our global trajectory. And then there's um, Tedros Ad- Adhanom. Gabriasus, geez, thanks for this name, G-H-E-B-R-E-Y-E-S-U-S, World Health Organization Director General. Sorry, I I don't, I never heard of you. I should, I should have heard of you from who, the Director in General. I want to be straight with you. There will be no return to the old normal for the foreseeable future. History of bioweapons. The United States began its first large-scale offensive bioweapons research during World War II in the spring of 1943 on orders from President Franklin Roosevelt as a collaboration between the U.S. military and its pharmaceutical industry partners. Pharma Titan George W. Merck 
ran the Pentagon's offensive bioweapons program while simultaneously directing his drug manufacturing behemoth. Merck boasted that his team could deliver biowarfare agents without vast expenditures or constructing huge facilities. Another advantage of bioweapons, he remarked, was that their development could proceed under the guise of legitimate medical research. The intelligence agencies were involved in the top-secret program from the outset. George Merck's hands on employee Frank Olson was an American bacteriologist, biological warfare scientist, and CIA officer. He worked for the United States Army Biological Warfare Laboratories at Fort Detrick with Merck and the U.S. military developing the U.S. bioweapons and psi warfare arsenal. Project Artichoke was an experimental CIA interrogation program that used psychoactive drugs like LSD in pursuit of enhanced interrogation methods. The project was part of a larger CIA program exploring approaches for controlling both individuals and populations. Olson was involved with Project Artichoke with moral misgivings beginning in May 1952 after watching a documentary on Protestant Reformation leader Martin Luther. A conscience-stricken Olson informed his bosses he intended to quit the biowarfare program. Do you guys know who Martin Luther is? He's, um... I'm thinking... Well, he was... I know he was a priest, but he might have been a bishop. I'm sorry. Okay, so he start, He found at the Lutheran Church, but his he had a problem with the Catholic Church back then because the, the Catholics, they would only do their Mass in Latin, and people weren't even reading the Bible, and they would... Um, it was becoming, becoming like a money-making, you know, business. Um, instead of a, um, a spiritual organization. And the way they were interpreting the Bible, too, was something that he was against. And um, in particular, like, the idol worship of um, paying, you know, paying for um, certain saints to grant a favor he saw as, like, witchcraft. Um, and then the scapulars, Catholics have these things they wear around their neck, and supposedly if you die with it on, you will automatically go to heaven. doesn't matter what you did. If you have a scapular, you will go to heaven if you die. So, you know, that's like, he, he's like, yeah, this is corrupt. And there was, um, there were many wars between the Lutherans and the, I don't know. So, um, I, I... I should I should know the history of this because I went to a Lutheran school and a Catholic school, but I was like kind of going through life like I don't want to be here. Can I just go through it with my eyes closed and sleeping and just you know be like a zombie? I really, I really, I was an atheist back then. I thought the whole thing was stupid, so I wasn't really paying attention. But I remember like I had to watch this documentary about Martin Luther, and um, if you guys ever you know want to research this, it's a it's a beautiful story the guy he was pretty awesome he was in he was put in prison and um they you know in, in the beginning like he, they they censored everything he wrote and people that were caught with his writings they were imprisoned as well and then he had such a huge following that um he wound up starting his own religion and but the catholics never reformed they i mean to this day they still believe the same thing that if you know you buy scapulars and you pay money to the church and we, we see the corruption with priests and stuff right i mean 
in the beginning when all this corruption came out here's another movie that i think is a good thing to watch is spotlight because it's it shows you how shocked people are in the beginning when their eyes are opened and they're like they don't want to believe it like i remember when people would not believe that a priest could do anything they're like no priests are they believed in the priests as much as they do in fauci and his team and these, like, whoever is controlling the information on the internet, they believe, like, no, this is 100% right. And you go along with what they're saying. And anybody who didn't go along with it, they were like, you don't want to associate with them because they were fringe people. And, you know, it's dangerous to be involved with fringe people. And plus, all of their victims, you know, were having a hard, a difficult time in life. A lot of the the boys that were molested wound up, like, getting into drugs and just having lifetime lifetime problems if unless they you know take on the the bully mentality and it seems like people that get abused if they internalize it and identify with the the abuser and then become abusers it doesn't make them feel like a victim so much and so these people just kind of step into the shoes of the abuser and then carry on the program where they're no longer the victim. They graduated to the abuser type of thing. Whereas other people that just are like shocked by it and just like have trauma from it. They spend their whole lives trying to, you know, like avoid it instead of like jumping in there and like, I want to be just like it. They try to forget it and they try to avoid it. And then they deal with those problems of trying to avoid it and that kind of thing, you know. So, um, so he watched this movie or documentary. Yeah, I remember that changed me too when I watched about Martin Luther. And I, I, until this day, like when I started to feel sorry for myself and I'm like, oh, you know, I'm all alone. And I think of Martin Luther and I'm like, man, that guy didn't need anyone. All He had so much faith in God. He was just like, the last thing on his mind was, I don't have any friends. He had everybody around him trying to kill him. And it was a miracle after miracle that he survived. Okay. Around the time of that announcement, Olson's CIA colleague, Sidney Gottlieb, head of the CIA's MKUltra, oh gosh, MKUltra, we're going to get into this now, um, covertly dosed him with LSD. Now, okay, I, I should just be quiet. I've, I, got in, I got into this MKUltra program thing. I read so much about it and... Um, it's, it's, it's real. It's not a conspiracy. It, the, you know, it went to the Supreme Court. They, the, the, um, the CIA and the FBI were charged with, um, crimes against, um, Americans because they were doing experiments on them without their, without their knowledge or consent. <clears throat> and they started with, um, started with magic mushrooms and then went with LSD and a lot of controlled opposition and just a lot of, like some people say, and I I agree with this. I that Charles Manson and his whole um, cult was concocted to um, to portray the anti-war protests and the hippies as just crazy crazy hippies. And um, you know, people used to hitchhike, and then they were getting killed. It was just like a war against hippies. <laughs> Okay. 
The U.S. government first described his death as a suicide and then a misadventure. In 1975, the government admitted its guilt in the murder and offered Olson's family an out-of-court settlement of $1,250,000, later reduced to $750,000, which they accepted with an official apology from President Gerald Ford and then-CIA Director William Colby. By 1969, the U.S. bioweapons program had developed weapons of a nuclear equivalence, according to David Franz, who for, thir- who for 23 years served as commander of the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. The principal limitation, Franz acknowledged, was the difficulty of managing bioweapons so as to prevent accidental escape. Ironically, Franz would later play a key role in the Pentagon Fauci gain-of-function programs leading up to the COVID-19 pandemic. It all ended, seemingly, in late 1969 when President Nixon traveled to Fort Detrick to announce the closure of America's bioweapons program for moral and strategic reasons. America signed the Biological Weapons Convention in 1972, forbidding development, use, and stockpiling of biological weapons, and mothballed most of its labs. But the agreement a supplement to the Geneva Convention, left thousands of scientists, military contractors, and Pentagon caliphs as stranded assets yearning for the program's revival. The treaty also included a yawning loophole. It allowed production of anthrax and other biological warfare agents for vaccine production. The Pentagon and CIA spooks continued to cultivate bioweapons seed stock. Between 1983 and 1988, Searle Pharmaceutical CEO Donald Rumsfeld, acting as Ronald Reagan's envoy in Iraq, arranged for the top-secret shipment of tons of chemicals and biological armaments, armaments, including anthrax and bubonic plague, to Iraqi President Saddam Hussein, hoping to reverse his looming defeat by Iran's million-man army. Ayatollah Khamenei victorious Iranian forces were then routing Saddam in their war over the Persian Gulf. The Bush administration feared the impact on global oil supplies if Iran prevailed in their conflict. The birth of the biosecurity agenda. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1988 to 1991, the military-industrial complex began rummaging about for a more reliable enemy to permanently justify its hefty share of the GDP. While most Americans eagerly awaited the ballyhooed peace dividend, Pentagon mandarins and their emporium of contractors may have considered with dismay that someone else would be spending money that was rightfully theirs. The peace dividend never materialized, beginning with the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993 and culminating in 9-11, Islamic terrorism replaced the Soviets as the essential adversary in U.S. foreign policy. It may have provided solace to the military and its contractors that terrorism was a more reliable long-term foe than the Soviets. Since terrorism is a tactic, not a nation, an imprecisely defined terrorism had the allure of an enemy that could never be vanquished. We can imagine the defense contractors' relief when Vice President Dick Cheney declared the long war, one he promised would last for generations, with battlegrounds scattered in more than 50 nations. Military contractors held tight to their gravy. You know, yeah, okay, another thing. 
Um, I remember when 9-11 happened, it was like, everywhere you went, you had to show them your bag and take off your shoes. And, um, we don't really have to do that so much anymore. Like, now we can... I, I mean... It's been a while since I've been out, to be honest. I haven't been out since the, during the whole pandemic. I haven't been to a concert, I meant, and, you know, in large crowds. But, um, the, let's see, 2019, I don't, I, I went to some fairs and stuff, and they didn't make us take off our shoes or look in our bags. But I remember when this happened, it was like every day people were worried that at any time, terrorists would just run around and just start shooting people and take people hostages in malls or if you went shopping somewhere or, you know, if you maybe you went out to a restaurant, there could be a terrorist. And so then people would start looking around at, you know, Arabs and beards and, you know, turbans and um, anything that looked like it was affiliated with, like, Muslim. It it made people, like, scared. And then it, it slowly dwindled. But, I mean, even in 2015, they would play this on the news. It was like a loop. 24-7 about terrorism. Where's the terrorism? And then it just went away. It was like when Trump got elected, I stopped hearing about terrorism. And people, like, no longer start, like, being afraid to sit next to a Muslim on an airplane. You know? Um, but it's weird how, like, these fears just sit there and they milk it for as long as they can and then they say well you don't want to have you know if you care about the greater good then you're willing to give up your rights so that we don't have terrorists bomb airplanes or you know they don't come into your schools so um yeah so what happened to it that's what i was wondering what happened to all these terrorists because i because i used to work for the airlines and and i realized that it's so I mean, I shouldn't even be saying, like, but where there's a will, there's a way, you know? If they really wanted to do something, and if there really were, if there were all these boogeymen and, you, sh you know, Muslims running around trying to kill the good Christians, right? They would have um, been able to figure out ways to do it, even without guns or grenades. I mean, there's so many things. And, like I said, I, I don't want to, like give out ideas but working on the airline it's like I, I saw so many like ways to do it without ever getting caught you know do you know that major airlines often take um just like excess packages that say haven't they have contracts with um like FedEx and stuff and so Sometimes if packages don't make it on an airplane, it, a commercial airliner will take it. So there's just like, you know, why would you strap a bomb to yourself and go sit on an airplane when it's so easy to just send one by mail? Okay, I'm not saying that that's what they should be doing. I'm just saying if if they wanted to, they could have done that. They could have done so many different things. They could have, like, it just blows my mind, like... Instead of crashing into the World Trade Center, they could have crashed into a nuclear power plant, you know? Or they could have, like, done something, you know, in the sewers. They could have... It's just... It, it goes on and on. But our focus was taking off our shoes, taking off our shoes, taking off our shoes. 
looking, having them look in your purse, having them like you be able to use cameras at the airport to see through your clothes, having them, they have the right to take you out in the airport and just randomly question you and interrogate you. And we got used to this. It's just like, okay, this is what happened. And it was, it was, it felt like we're a Pavlovian conditioning response. We, we go through this psychologically. We're like, I am willing to give up my rights for the greater good. I, and that's what we're thinking. I am willing to stand here and take off my shoes. I am willing to not be able to drink water when I come into the airport and buy your water for $4.50 and not question it. I'm willing to do all of these things so that we can prevent terrorism. And that reminds me of what's happening with COVID. Like, I am willing to wear a mask to prevent COVID. It's like, do you know that these viruses can easily escape through the mask? Do you know, like, when, okay, you know, in this bowling alley that that we go to, you can eat without your mask six feet away from where you bowl. But if you're caught bowling, because they have snoops, government snoops that go around, and they will take pictures... And these people at the, this, they, they, this um, bowling alley is awesome. You know, it's a very old, you know, kind of like funky, rundown bowling alley. But it's old and it had a bunch of like professionals come out of it. There's people that bowl there that are really good, you know. And so it's like, it's a very tight community. And the Snoops came in and they, and they fined them twice. So they have like $30,000 worth of fines because... People were caught bowling without a mask on. And so you come back, you have a beer, and then you're supposed to put on your mask and walk. It's like you're doing it as this conditioning response to be like, I am willing to fight COVID. And it's um, the the people like I one of my passions is psychology and advertising. And and I like I said, I really got into this MK Ultra brainwashing thing. I went down that rabbit hole many years ago. And, um, and so I, it's happening now when, um, when Robert Malone brought up mass formation, I was just so happy. I'm like, wow, somebody said it. Somebody is giving a name for it. You, you can't say brainwashing because then you're just like cuckooville, you know, but it's like, there's brainwashing and advertising. There's brainwashing every day. Every day we condition. Our, we have cultural conditioning. It's not, it's not like um, a coincidence that all these people in this country believe and act like this. And all these people in this country believe and act like that. And nobody questions their religion. And nobody questions the way things are done. You, you know, you, you come in, you take off your shoes, you open up your purse. And, and then you feel like I belong to this network of this pe- these people in this culture and we are standing up against terrorism the whole point of it is to just create a mindset of like the next thing that happens you're going to be willing to do automatically because you've already done this so y- you don't question it and the kids don't question it they're like they if the kids that were raised in it they're like yeah this is something that you do just like you Eat with a fork and a spoon, or you eat with chopsticks, or you eat with your hands, depending on how you were taught. You just do it. And so the next thing that they throw at you, you're going to automatically do it because it's in the, in the same alignment of, I am willing to give up my rights for, to, you know, to protect our country against terrorists. Who are the next terrorists now? Now the anti-vaxxers are being painted out as terrorists. I, I was watching this, like 
another thing on Twitter. These children, straight out of 1984. I don't know if you guys have read this book, but the, in 1984, there's these children. They're like not. They're like the Nazi youth, you know. And they um, they were running the show, and they they had this pride and survival of the fittest. We are. You know, and they, they would tell on their um, neighbors and their, their parents were afraid of them because these kids had such a strong patriotic loyalty that went beyond the parents even. And so the kids were like running around. And so anyways, you know, I'm watching this Twitter thing and, and then the kids were saying, the interviewers asked me, what should we do with people who refuse to be vaccinated? And, you know, a little boy and a little girl, they said... Well, we should put them in jail, take away their freedoms. We should have them pay fines. And they were coming up with all these ideas. Should we allow them to be treated in hospitals? No, no. They all of them said no. We shouldn't be they shouldn't be they shouldn't be denied health care because they're not willing to partake in this nonsense, you know? Of like, I'm willing to do this to fight COVID. So if they're not willing to do this to fight COVID, then we should be willing to help them in their healthcare or anything else. And if they're causing all these people all this harm, then they should be punished for it. That's the next step. Then when the once these people become looked at and labeled as domestic terrorists, everyone's going to fall in line, not even question it. Then. The birth of biosecurity agenda. Okay, I read some of that. Military contractors held tight to their gravy train with the mission of building an expensive new arsenal of anti-terror technologies. But terrorism had its own shortfall, namely the challenge of sustaining public fear sufficient to justify spending substantial portions of GDP to meet a threat that killed fewer Americans annually than lightning strikes. By 1999, some far-sighted Pentagon planners were already looking ahead to the more exuberant and sustainable prop prosperity that would come with a war on germs. How much... How, I need to do research on this, but how much do you think those masks are that Biden is shipping and, you know, everyone's going to get, like, a mask, some some kind of special mask now for COVID? Like, how much are they charging I know we're getting it for free, but where's this money coming from and where are the middlemen and who's getting paid for all of this? Because none of this stuff is free, you know, but we're willing to spend tax taxpayer dollars to fight COVID. Nobody's even questioning it. No one's saying, hey, could we use that money for like, you know, feed people, poverty? You know, there's like homeless camps all around here. Um, can we like do something about all the drug addicted parents and, you know, no, 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 no. Just, you know, use this money for masks and, you know, um, spying on anti-vaxxers who are now looked at as terrorists. And using this money to... It, it, it's, it's like nobody even has the right to say, I don't want to use my money. I don't want to use the taxpayer's money for that. They don't even question it. It's like, well, if you're not... If, if, you, if, if somebody were to even to say, like, let's not waste a bunch of money on masks... They would be looked at like, like a, like a terrorist, you know. Definitely not a conscientious person who wants to help fight the spread of COVID. And and vaccines, how much are they costing? I know everyone's getting them for free, but how how much money, you know, um, does it cost to to buy them from these corporations? 
we have no choice whether or not they buy it. They're going to buy it. Whether or not we take it, we still are. It's coming out of taxpayers' money. Okay, enough about that. Most historians date the nativity of the modern biosecurity agenda to the October 2001 anthrax attacks. But years earlier, military and medical industrial complex planners were already conceptualizing biosecurity as a potent strategy for leveraging potential pandemics or bioterrorism into vast funding increases and as a device for metamorphosing America, the world's exemplary democracy, into a national security state with global dominance. Robert Cadillac, Let the Games Begin, bioweapons expert, Robert P. Cadillac is an American physician and retired colonel in the United States Air Force who served as Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services for Preparedness and Response from August 2017 until January 2021 and who managed the COVID-19 crisis during the Trump administration. Second only to his longtime crony and comrade in arms, Anthony Fauci, Robert Cadlick played a historic leadership role in fomenting the contagious logic that infectious disease poses a national security threat requiring a, militari- a militarized response. Since the 1993 World Trade Center terror attack, Cadlick had been evangelizing about an imminent anthrax attack that would doom the American way of life. In the mid-1990s, Cadillac served as part of an elite Air Force operations unit of U.N. weapons inspectors fruitlessly hunting the Iraqi desert for Saddam Hussein's suspected stores of anthrax and botulism following the first Persian Gulf War. At 2.47 in the early morning of February 1, 2020, four hours after his loyal grantee virologist Christian Anderson informed Dr. Fauci that he and other leading biologists believe that the genetic sequence responsible for the furin cleave on the virus's spike protein, the peculiar structure that allows the organism to bind tightly to and infect cells with the ACE2 receptor, was highly unlikely to be the product of natural selection. Dr. Fauci fired a carefully worded email to Cadlick. Dr. Fauci's other emails from that evening suggest that he was intensely worried that the Chinese experiments that may have created this striation and the novel coronavirus would bear his fingerprints. If Dr. Fauci's gain-of-function research had indeed minted COVID-19, then Cadlick would also be implicated. Cadillac served on the small so-called P3CO committee charged with approving NIH's gain-of-function experiments, and it is clear from Dr. Fauci's email that the subject was also on Cadillac's mind. Dr. Fauci attached an article to his email to Cadillac. It was Bat Lady. She Zheng Gli's deceitful effort to downplay the laboratory leak hypothesis. Bob, this came out just today. Dr. Fauci told his gain-of-function confederate, gives a balanced view. Subsequent events proved that the author of that article was deliberately lying to conceal the Wuhan's manipulation of coronavirus pathogens that were nearly identical to the microbe that caused COVID-19. Both Cadillac and Fauci had been involved for over a decade in promoting and funding these dangerous experiments through NIAID and the Biomedical Advanced Research and Developing Authority. The biosecurity funding agency that Cadillac had helped create, including funneling millions of dollars in U.S. funding to Xi, Z-H-I, the hapless writer of the 
exculpatory, exculpatory article. Dr. Fauci's email shows these two technocrats and others patching together evidence for the dubious official story that they would tell the world. Over the next few weeks, Dr. Fauci would pull the reliable old lovers that he had manipulated for decades to transform convenient canards into official orthodoxies. The contrived cosmologies he thereby constructed would hold for a full year before they finally began to unravel. Cadlick is a Dr. Strangelove knockoff with deep ties to spy agencies, Big Pharma, the Pentagon, and military contractors who profiteer from the spread of bioweapon alarmism. So, yeah, this is a guy we should all be doing some research on, Robert P. Cadlick. Intelligence agency historian and journalist Whitney Webb describes Cadlick as a man enmeshed in the world of intelligence, military intelligence, and corporate corruption, dutifully fulfilling the vision of his friends in high places and behind closed doors. In 1998, Cadlick created an internal strategy paper for the Pentagon promoting the development of pandemic pathogens as a stealth weapon that the Pentagon could deploy against its enemies without leaving fingerprints. Biological weapons, quote, under the cover of an endemic or natural disease occurrence provides an attacker the potential for plausible denial. Biological warfare's potential to create significant economic losses and consequent political instability, coupled with plausible deniability, exceeds the possibilities of any other human weapon. Cadlick in 1999 organized the, his paranoia into several illustrative scenarios to demonstrate the United States' vulnerability to biological attack. In one of Cadlick's doomsday fantasies dubbed corn terrorism, China clandestinely sprays corn seed blight over the Midwest from commercial airliners. Cadlick warns China gains significant corn market share and tens of billions of dollars of additional profit from the crop while leaving the U.S. corn belt in ruin. Another Cadillac scenario titled Lousy Wine envisions disgruntled European winemakers covertly releasing grape lice concealed in cans of pate to target California wine producers. Jeez, if you start thinking about terrorism, there's like so many ways to skin a cat. There's so many different things they could do. I mean, it just like never ends. I don't think it would be possible for us to prevent Everything, if that, I think the best thing that we could do is have good relations and not be assholes and stop trying to negatively influence people and, you know, just be nice, just be cool. And then the likelihood of us being targeted for terrorist attacks will go down. And instead, they're doing the opposite. They're like, I'm surprised there's not more terrorists, actually. I know they're accusing people of being a terrorist. They're, they're calling, like, mothers at PTA meetings for, you know, that don't want their children to wear masks all day long or get vaccinated. They're calling them domestic terrorists. So it's like they're stirring the turd all day long. And, and like we talked about in the previous chapters, he talked, RFK talks about it, you know, we are talking about it in the last episode. You know, it was like, there's always something. Fauci would say, this could happen, you know, he cries wolf about Zika, about all this other stuff, and then they throw a bunch of money at him, and then nothing happens, and he says, okay, well, I prevented it. You know, and they do, they do the same thing with the terrorists. This could happen, so let's prevent it. And they're making, you know, that's just their bread and butter. And then they're like, wow, we can make a, money, a lot of money. The more we scare people, the more money they throw at us. In April 2001... 
study for the National Defense University National War College, Cadillac urgently recommended the creation of a strategic national stockpile to warehouse countermeasures, including vaccines and antibiotics, and recommended regulatory changes to provide for mandatory vaccinations and co coercive quarantines in the event of a pandemic. Those ideas helped him win an appointment as special assistant for biodefense planning to President George W. Bush after the post-September 11th anthrax attacks later that same year. From this sinecure, Cadillac's fervent lobbying persuaded Congress to establish a strategic national stockpile whose contents are currently worth $7 billion. Cadillac would come to control purchases for that stockpile, and following the lead of his comrades, Cadillac would come to control purchases for that stockpile, and following the lead of his comrades, Bill Gates and Tony Fauci, he would use that power to enrich his vaccine industry friends and sideline public health. As journalist Alexis Baden-Mayer observed, Cadillac created the biodefense industrial complex as we know it, and he rules it like a czar. The Bill Gates-Anthony Fauci-funded biosecurity. Let the war games begin. In 1999, Dr. Cadillac organized a simulation of a smallpox terrorist attack on U.S. soil for a joint exercise by the newly formed John Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies and the Department of Health and Human Services. The founder of the center was D.A. Henderson, famed for leading the program that eradicated smallpox in 1977. The senior fellow and co-founder of the Johns Hopkins Center was CIA spook and pharmaceutical industry lobbyist named Tara O'Toole. She took over as chief when Henderson left. The third center director was Tom Inglesby, who remains in that role. In 1999, the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation committed $20 million to Johns Hopkins to establish the Bill and Melinda Gates Institute for Population and Reproductive Health. For the next two decades, Gates would direct a vast stream of funding to the enterprise of elevating biosecurity as the national priority. Some of his most visible investments funded a series of simulations presided over by Inglesby at his Johns Hopkins Center. Those simulations would make Inglesby the congenial face of biosecurity paranoia, paranoia feed the burgeoning biodefense industry, and help lay the foundation for the modern security state. The deal pipeline from NIH and NIAID to Johns Hopkins, an astonishing $13 billion since 2001, dwarfs Gates's contributions to the school. But shoddy or perhaps deliberately obscure reporting makes it nearly impossible to determine how many of these dollars flow to Inglesby and his center. Cadillac simulations and over a dozen that would succeed it over the next 20-plus years, many under Bill Gates's direction, shared common features. None of them emphasized protecting public health by showing Americans how to bolster their immune systems, to eat well, to lose weight, to exercise, to maintain vitamin D levels, immune systems, and to avoid chemical exposure. No, if you even said, I mean, I, I, I told you guys this before, like, I, I said turmeric and Certain things for the blood are good, like paprika and um, ginger and cinnamon. You know, they they say that that is. Um, I got, I got, I was told that. You know, you're not supposed to be giving medical advice, and that, um, it's it's like it's not even medical advice though. You know, this is like just like common sense. Like, we should be knowing how to take care of our bodies, like, with exercise, and that should just be, like, common knowledge, but they would, they were looking at people who were 
spreading information that they said there is no cure for COVID. The only thing is vaccines. And they didn't want... It's just the strangest thing. I mean, like, never before, like, when people would say, like, oh, for colds, I take, you know, Vicks Vapor Rub or whatever. And it, there was never a problem with that. But now if you if you say things like that, you get hounded. And you will get... On Twitter, they will... Um, they will give you a warning. They'll lock your account and they'll say that you're spreading misinformation and you have to delete that tweet and then you can get back into your account. Um, okay, so yeah. So they wouldn't allow you to even talk about like any, any, any kind of treatment. None of these focus on devising the vital communication infrastructure to link frontline doctors during a pandemic or to facilitate the development and refinement of optimal treating, treatment protocols. None of these dealt seriously with the need to identify off-the-shelf, known as repurposed therapies, therapeutic drugs, to mitigate fatalities and to shorten a pandemic's duration. None of them considered ways to isolate the sick and protect the vulnerable or how to shield people in nursing homes and other institutions from infection. None of them questioned the efficacy of masks, lockdowns, and social distancing in reducing casualties. None of them engaged in soul-searching about how to preserve constitutional rights during a global pandemic. Yeah, I mean, and, and you were not allowed to talk about how to boost the immune system. And I, I've, I've heard, you know, like um, doctors say that you don't want to boost your immune system because they would say that that's just an allergic reaction. It's like, no, just strengthen your immune system so that you can withstand viruses and bacteria and stuff. Because, you know, the people in the nursing homes, they, ha they have other vaccines, okay? Theoretically, like, they should not be getting any of this if the vaccines work. They have an immune system, which is like, the foundation of their body and how it heals, you know, and they don't even acknowledge the natural immunity or the immune system. I mean, who, who, who's the, who are the experts on the immune system? What do they say about it? I mean, like, they say that vaccines are the only way to improve your immunity. But then why are these people that have more vaccines than anyone because they're older and they've had more flu shots than children why are they more susceptible to it? Not all of them have underlying conditions. Some of, you know, like we, we look at old people like they are, um, they're weaker, but you know, in other countries, elders don't get sick. Like, you know, look at teachers. Teachers don't get sick as much as other people because they're exposed. They've had, they've had more exposure. They're not because they've had more flu shots. But children, they're resilient. So children get sick all the time. And they have, they have good immune systems. And they just get over it. So these elderly people in nursing homes, they're just old. Okay? Not all, they may not necessarily have diabetes or anything else. However, I think that pretty soon, like once you turn 50, everyone's going to be on medication for something. But, like, they, they all get their, they're required to get annual flu shots several times in a nursing home. And those are the ones that have been hit the hardest. And their immune systems should have been, like, trained. That's what they're saying. They're telling parents that vaccines are, like, 
personal trainers or coaches that train your immune system how to respond. It's like those people should be better than anybody at it. You know, instead we're seeing just the opposite where the kids are doing better with COVID where they they're like asymptomatic for the most part. I mean, there are no kids around where I live that had like COVID. We don't, I mean, they may have, but they weren't tested because it wasn't that serious. But, um, and then, you know, like the people that I know that have had it, they, they say that it was like a cold. I'm not saying that it was like that the whole time. I'm sure it mutated to like live with it in its host, but back to the gain of function, you know, we talked about this last week and the week before. No one's, no one's looking into the lab leak theory. Fauci is just saying it came from a bat because it has 96% of the same DNA as SARS. But it's like humans share 98.8% of our DNA with chimpanzees. So that doesn't even make sense for, for people to be like, oh, 96%? Yeah, that must be it. It must be naturally occurring. If he created this virus with the intention to let it loose on American citizens, that should be considered an act of bioterrorism. Instead of anti-vaxxers be consider, being considered as, you know, domestic terrorists, right? So this is, this, this is probably why he doesn't want, he keeps pushing. He's like, no, this is natural. This is, it's like, wouldn't you, if you're a scientist, shouldn't you want to explore? Because if it, you know, it's just bullshit to me. I, I, if he was innocent, he'd be, he'd have a bunch of people on it. Like, yeah, let's figure out where it came from. Because if there are people developing Ter- you know, like viruses for bioterrorism, we need to know about it. And we need to, you know, make sure that we tell them that we know about it and bring them to justice and maybe like set up a meeting, a world meeting <laughs> where I mean, we can't like let something like that loose and then expect that a vaccine is just going to prevent it. So, um, okay. But yeah, nobody's talking about this. I don't, here's my thing. If, if I'm, if I think that like, I'm, you know, I, I Alex Berenson, is he controlled opposition? Like Robert Malone said, anybody who's not talking about any other kind of therapy, whether it's herbal or something that's very safe, you know, like they say ivermectin is, I haven't done a lot of research on that, but I mean, even just like herbalism, natural medicine, vitamin C, um, just basic health stuff. Right. Um, if, if they're not willing to talk about that, I'm very suspicious of them, you know. And then also, if they're not willing to talk about the lab leak, I'm suspicious of them. Because everything else just seems like it's a distraction. The main thing that we should be focusing on is the lab leak theory. Because if it did come out there, that means that it's bioterrorism. And this was done on purpose. And if we if we can't talk about, like, alternative therapies because they're too fringe. I don't trust any of those people because there's no money on it. Same thing with like breast milk. You know, the majority of mothers in the United States don't breastfeed their babies exclusively for six months because there's just no money in it. I mean, pediatricians prescribe formula. And I I heard this one case where this woman, she went off, she didn't comply and she got some organic stuff because her baby was like failing to thrive. The baby was premature. And they were telling the mother that her breast milk was inferior, you know. And um, so they took her baby away. It was a newborn baby and she didn't get to see her baby until the baby was six months old. And by that time the baby was already, you know, 
on other types of, you know, strict scientific formula. But um, yeah, in 25 to 50%, depending on the hospital, of babies are born by cesarean. Because it's like, it's hospitals are businesses. And it's a lot easier for a doctor to go in 20 minutes, you know, just like cuts her open. And so it's, it's very, um, it's very disturbing how they downplay like just natural, like the mother's milk isn't good enough. My, my niece, she, she, she asked me, she's like, well, how can I get my milk to, you know, have more, more calories? They say that it has enough vitamins in it, but it doesn't have enough calories in that. Her baby was premature because they did a cesarean and they injected her with like cortisol and stuff like that. And so she, there, it's just, it's sad. I saw how it happened with her. I never even paid attention before, but you know, I, I mean, I, I heard like stories cause women don't talk about this kind of thing about cesareans, but there's, there's an epidemic there too. And the breastfeeding, you know, how they, they tell mothers that their breast milk isn't good enough and how they could actually take babies away if the, if the, if they're, they're like the baby's too small. It's like, well, no shit. The baby's friggin' premature because you injected the mom with cortisol. God knows what else, you know, because mothers are, are also required to have um, vaccines like hepatitis and stuff like that, too. So th- they, they start drugging the mothers and the babies up and telling the mothers, like, it's not scientifically formulated. So breast milk, even though there are people that say, like, breast milk is good. There's, because it's free, they don't, they know that the science says that, that the science, we know by common sense that milk is superior, but since there's no money in it, they'll look for ways to say, and it's, I don't even think it's conscious. I think it's just like, they're, the doctors are conditioned, they're brainwashed to, you know, to, to test the milk and say, oh, look here, it doesn't check out. This doesn't check out. Okay, so our protocol is if this doesn't check out, you don't have enough calories in your milk, then you have to supplement with this. There you go. And it's just like over and over and over again. They don't even think about it. They're just like, well, it's supposed to be like this. These are the guidelines. Your kids should be this weight at this time. And, you know, and it's just like they don't, there's no emotional human connection that says, well, you know, maybe for your you know, your baby is not like every other baby that needs exactly the same thing. You know, just like trust your body that your body knows what to do. The mother can produce milk. I mean, animals all over the world give birth. They don't have a problem with it. And, you know, midwives have a much higher success rate delivering, you know, babies that are healthy. And the United States has the second worst rate for infant mortality out of out of all the other um out of all the other i think it's was it oh you, you should probably double check the statistic but i read that it was the second worst fatality infant mortality rate so um i would imagine that well thinking about these other countries where like kids are born in in areas where there's no clean water that would have to be worse but i have to do more research on that okay so back to what we're where are we at now war games the still unsolved mystery of the post 9-11 anthrax attacks 
contemporaneously with Johns Hopkins smallpox simulation. The Pentagon launched a top-secret project at a former nuclear weapons site in the Nevada desert to test the feasibility of building a small anthrax production facility using off-the-shelf equipment easily available in hardware stores and biological supply catalogs. Codename Projects Bacchus. That's interesting. Because Bacchus is the god of wine, also known as Dionysus, the god of drama, the god that he's like a Lucifer type of, he's basically Lucifer, but, um, it's, he's not as sinister as Lucifer as we think of Satan and stuff. Bacchus is, um, is like this trickster type of God. He's a hermaphrodite, uh, or male, but bisexual. So he's kind of like a gay, uh, and he's very much in, into like, so like wine, when people drink wine together and they loosen up and they reveal each other's true character, Bacchus is like that. He's like, gets people involved in a drama to expose their true character and plays on people's addictions, desires. And think of like a Shakespearean type of drama. So it's dangerous because if a person has a bet, has a corrupt character, Bacchus will like, or Dionysus will illuminate them eventually but it's going to be a lot of pain and suffering meanwhile Bacchus laughs at it all like we're all it's all this human comedy it's just strange that because because I'm seeing I think politics is now theatrics and science is now business and I was just thinking about this Dionysian type of like force that I'm feeling you know around me with um, the the um, illumination, the Illuminati. You know, I don't want to get into conspiracies too much. and I. But the fact that they are naming this stuff after and that they, they worship Bacchus tells me that these people are not completely unaware of the subtle forces that drive mankind and and it's also a way to um to not like have this morality of right and wrong because if you are like a dionysian or a luciferian type of follower then their motto is is um do what thou will and so, whatever your your human will is, that is divine because you are God. And um, that's considered like a left hand path, but people get into it because it, you know, it's like the Dionysus Bacchus takes you on a, a roller coaster ride and promises promises riches and delivers them with everybody has their their um day of reckoning okay so um in the book it goes on more about anthrax and i've forgotten about this but i remember when it happened it seemed like a really big deal it was like oh my god i was afraid to check the mail i'm I'm sorry i'm embarrassed i'm stupid for doing that but uh, yeah I, I remember i was like afraid to check the mail because um and there was like this anthrax everyone's afraid of it that there's going to be like bioterrorism in through the mail with that
um, the spooks and the simulations. By playing the role of U.S. President, the Senate Defense Committee's longtime chairman, Senator Sam Nunn, a dyed-in-the-wool warhawk, brought prestige, urgency, and a militaristic gestalt to Cadillac's dark winter exercise. Most of the other key participants shared Cadillac's intelligence agencies, pedigrees, CIA involvement was a consistent feature of this, and all the subsequent simulations. Other participants included Robert Cadillac's fellow intelligence officers and war college professor, Colonel Randall Larson, another career bioweapons expert who helped choreograph the exercise and appeared in its fictional scripted news clips. CIA's director, James Woolsey, was a participant and organizer, as was a pharmaceutical industry lobbyist and bio logical weapons expert Tara O'Toole, a director of the CIA hedge fund in QTEL, in QTEL, and the CIA's former deputy director for science and technology, Ruth David, Hopkins bioterrorism expert Tom Inglesby, and New York Times journalist Judith Miller also participated. James Woolsey's presence and that of Colonel Larson, Ruth David, and Tara O'Toole signaled the intelligence community's ubiquitous but shadowy presence in biosecurity and all things vaccine. I sat on a board with Woolsey for several years and am familiar with his deep anxieties about germ warfare. Woolsey's germophobia rivals familiar with his deep... I'm sorry. Woolsey's germophobia rivals Cadillac's. Woolsey's Woolsey calls a biological weapons attack the single most dangerous threat to U.S. national security in the foreseeable future. O'Toole is a biodefense enthusiast, co-founder of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Studies, and executive vice president of the CIA's investment arm, InQtel. That shady firm is the vector by which U.S. intelligence services infiltrate startup firms on the cutting edge of technological innovation. In 2009, when President Obama nominated O'Toole for Undersecretary for Science and Technology at the Department of Homeland Security, Senator John McCain criticized her for concealing her role as strategic director of a pharmaceutical industry lobbying outfit, Alliance Biosciences. Alliance is an unincorporated corporate front group created by Ibrahim El Hebri and his partner, former Joint Chiefs Chair Admiral William Crow and funded by other bioweapons firms. Alliance has no tax filing and operates out of a K Street influence shop. The congressional record shows that the Alliance is a so-called stealth lobbying firm that spent 500000 over 2005 and 2009 pitching Congress and the Homeland Security Department for greater biodefense expenditures, and particularly for anthrax vaccines. Alliance's other funders include Pfizer, the International Pharmaceutical Aerosol Consortium, and SIG Technologies, a biodefense military contractor. O'Toole's nomination to Undersecretary of the Department of Homeland Security also prompted objections from more mainstream bioweapons experts, including the preeminent Rutgers microbiologist William Ebright. She was the single most extreme person, either in or out of government, advocating for massive biodefense expansion and relaxation of provisions for safety and security. Ebright added, she makes Dr. Strangelove look sane. O'Toole's support for every flawed decision and counterproductive policy on biodefense, biosafety, and biosecurity during the Bush administration. O'Toole is as out of touch with the reality and paranoid. It would be hard to think of a person less well-suited for the position. During those same 2009 confirmation hearings, Democratic Senator Carl Levin 
of Michigan added to the voices of skepticism. Dr. O'Toole fell short of the strict adherence to scientific principles when she was the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies. Noting that Dr. O'Toole was one of the principal designers and authors of the June 2001 Dark Winter Exercise that simulated a covert attack on the United States by bioterrorists. Um, ironically, even Dr. Fauci, who by then was already the king of embellishing and fabricating pandemics, voiced his, his disapproval of O'Toole and Cadillac's extreme dark winter extra exaggerations, which Dr. Fauci declared much, much worse than would have been the cause than would have been the case in real life. The transmission rate of smallpox was not the only area where O'Toole and Cadillac ignored facts. On February 19, 20, 2002, O'Toole wrote that many experts believe that the smallpox virus is not confined to these two official repositories, one in the United States and one in Russia, and may be in the possession of states of sub subnational groups pursuing active biological weapons programs. Uh, recently, uh, Bill Gates is going on and on about smallpox. He's like, we need to prepare for a smallpox epidemic. It's like, okay, you didn't get us this time with COVID. So I think he's like on the like plan B with smallpox. Um, okay, so I think I'm going to end this right now because I'm sorry, guys. This is going to take me longer than I... I'm going to try to... I'm going to try to finish this... Uh, let's see. I was hoping I could finish it before the protest, but I really don't think that's going to happen because I'm not even halfway through chapter 12 yet. <laughs> so, okay. Anyways, thank you so much for being with me here on Brainbow today. And, um, good luck if you're going to the protest. And if not, um, you can go to the Children's Defense Fund and print up some stickers and maybe, you know, pass them around and decorate your, um, your house and neighborhood with them. Thank you so much for being here with me today. And I'm Michelle Contreras and I hope to see you next time.